Hello, welcome to the Ages Patient podcast series. My name is Dr. Rachel Green. I'm a general gynaecologist and obstetrician, and I'm a proud board member for the Australasian Gynaecological Endoscopy and Surgery Society. We provide education for health practitioners and now also patients. This series has been developed to help educate you, the audience, on a number of gynaecological conditions. Through these programs, I will interview a number of specialists and pioneers in their field. I really hope you will find these podcasts helpful and interesting. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to the Ages Patient Podcast. My name is Rachel Green and this is the second in our series and today I'm joined by Anoush Yazdani. Anoush uh, was our immediate past president of the Australian Ghani Australasian Gynae Endoscopy and Surgery Society. Um, Anoush, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us why you're a good person to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome? Hello, Rachel. It's lovely to join you here on the podcast. So as Rachel had said, I'm the immediate past president of the Australasian Gynae Endoscopy Society. I'm also the director of research and education for the Queensland uh, Fertility Group and a director of Eve Health. So my subspecialty is reproductive and echinology and infertility and of course laparoscopic surgery but that's where my interest lies in polycystic ovary syndrome. So today our our podcast is going to be on polycystic ovarian syndrome and it obviously goes by lots of titles so I hear it used by lots of different specialists as PCOD, PCOS, polycystic ovaries so what's the actual correct terminology and what each of those actually mean? Okay I, I think there has been a lot of confusion about this. The correct term for this, based on the most recent uh, publication that we've had, is in fact polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS. Sometimes people call it PCOS, but more appropriately, people call PCOS. We've used polycystic ovary polycystic ovarian disease in the past and people have used a variety of different words but if you're talking about polycystic ovary syndrome PCOS is the most appropriate uh, terminology at the moment. And polycystic ovary is a little different, an ultrasound diagnosis not necessarily part of the syndrome, how do we differentiate between one and the other? You're absolutely right, Rachel. There was lots of discussion at the last meeting about whether or not we should continue with this term at all because it's a bad term. It makes people think that their ovaries are full of cysts yes. that may be causing problems, that yes. may be causing pain. And in fact, that's not the issue at all. Polycystic ovary syndrome is the most common uh, hormonal dysfunction or endocrinopathy in women of reproductive age. It affects somewhere between 8 to 13% of all women, depending on who you, uh, what population you look at. And so when we're talking about polycystic ovary syndrome, we need to be aware that we're talking about a whole group of different disorders that have in fact been classified under that one syndrome. And so this group in fact contains at least four different subtypes, not all of whom have polycystic ovaries. And more importantly, in fact, as you quite rightly said, polycystic ovaries are quite normal in the young. And the newest diagnosis, in fact, no longer includes ultrasound within the first eight years from the onset of periods as part of the diagnostic criteria. So how do we diagnose it? Ah, So we still talk about the old Rotterdam consensus, which is a meeting that occurred a number of years ago, where we came up with two out of three main criteria. And you have to have 
two out of these. So number one is you need to have menstrual disturbance or problems with ovulation. Number two, you need to have evidence of excess male hormone, and that may be either through a blood test or it may be through a clinical examination. And in some groups, that means increased acne. In some groups, that means uh, increased hair growth. And the type of hair growth that we're talking about is, in fact, that dark terminal hair. It's not little vellus sort of hair that covers. And then the last uh, criterion is that there are polycystic ovaries, and polycystic ovaries means that the ovaries tend to be large and they tend to have lots and lots of little follicles. Now, those follicles are normal in women, but when the number increases and the new criteria are more than 20 per ovary, then we call it polycystic ovaries. So the diagnostic criteria are two out of three, irregular periods, um, evidence of my excess male hormone or polycystic ovaries. And that's how we make the diagnosis. And that's still relevant today? That's, that's still relevant today. Now, in the young woman, so in the woman within the eight years from the onset of periods, we no longer require ultrasound. So we can now make a provisional diagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome, if you like, without having the third and final defining criterion. And once you have PCOS, if you're diagnosed as a young person, is that going to be your lot in life? Are you always going to have PCOS? So uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, it's a very hard question. <laughs> so polycystic ovary syndrome is in fact a uh, the end point of a number of processes that lead to this appearance. Now, in general, if you have metabolic um, involvement with this, and that means problems with things like your cholesterol and uh, problems with sugar metabolism, then you will have that for life. And for that reason, you're actually at increased risk of having diabetes for the rest of your life. The new change with the new guidelines has in fact been that we now require a much more ongoing, longer care of women with polycystic ovary syndrome. It's no longer just okay to just make the diagnosis, pop people on the pill and leave it at that. But in fact, once you've been diagnosed with PCOS, really the diagnosis remains. One of the issues, of course, that as women get older, their ovaries change and so the egg count drops. So one of the cardinal uh, diagnostic criteria that we had, which was the polycystic ovaries, often disappears in the late 30s and 40s. But the metabolic or the hormonal problems still remain. Uh, menstrual changes. I mean, I certainly see that in my practice, that patients can seemingly go from very irregular to quite regular periods. Uh, and, I, and I think that's absolutely right. So we know that, you know, periods are very uh, variable when women first start. And then as women settle into their reproductive uh, lifespan, so in mid-20s to your late 30s, cycles have become much more regular. And really all of the tests that we've developed for polycystic ovary syndrome in terms of the hormones have actually been set for that time frame rather than for the younger woman who, so, who are the patient group that we often see. And then as women get older, of course, cycles become more irregular again. Now, women who have polycystic ovaries or the large number of follicles sitting in there may actually have a prolonged regularization of their cycles later on in life as that egg count actually drops, which is what would normally happen with every woman. What would you say would be the common clinical presentations of someone with polycystic ovarian syndrome? So in the uh, young patient, so someone under the age of 20, menstrual disturbance is probably the most common thing that we would see. In our practice over here, fertility problems are, are number one. Yeah. And so 
problems falling pregnant, either coming off the pill. And the most common scenario that I would see would be that someone's been on the pill since they were uh, 14 because they've had irregular periods and then they stopped the pill at the age of 28. And not with a view to necessarily falling pregnant immediately, but letting the pill get out of your system. And three, four, six months later, their cycles are still irregular. And that's the most common thing, presentation that we would have. And what about the other hormone things like acne and hair growth? And let's talk about weight as well. Okay. So a significant proportion of women with polycystic ovary syndrome are overweight or obese. So that makes up over 85% of the group. So it's a very big component. But 15% are actually normal or lower weight. Mm. So it's important not to miss that Mm. diagnosis in that group. The other symptoms that women often describe with polycystic ovary syndrome are increased hair growth, so increased hair growth on the face, in particular on the chest, lower back, legs, or acne, particularly in the Southeast Asian populations where we tend to have less hair growth. So they're very important issues. What's also very clear now is that women with polycystic ovary syndrome have quite a lot of psychosexual uh, components to the disease. So it's often under-evaluated how much exhaustion, how much um, disordered eating and eating disorders actually occur in this age group. And they're not necessarily the reason for why women have developed polycystic ovary syndrome, but rather the other way around. They're related to the endocrine and metabolic changes that occur in this group. So when we talk about menstrual disturbance with these women, it's interesting how it can be very variable from women who have no periods Mm. to women who bleed all the time. So why do we see that big variation? So one of the big risk factors, one of the long-term consequences of polycystic ovary syndrome is, of course, anovulation and with that then endometrial hyperplasia and the effect on the lining. Now, it depends to a certain extent exactly what the hormonal Uh, situation is in the woman who's been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. So the women who are overweight or obese are much more likely to develop a thickening of the lining and for that reason also have very irregular shedding of the lining because they actually have relatively normal or high estrogen levels. Now on the other hand we might see a group of women who have absolutely no estrogen floating around and in that or very little estrogen floating around or very high levels of male hormones and they actually suppress the lining and for that reason they have a very thin lining and are probably not at risk of developing endometrial hyperplasia. I think uh, what concerns me is those patients that don't bleed because they're probably quite happy with that symptom Mm -hmm. as a woman. That's probably, you know, quite a nice symptom Mm -hmm. to have, but it's the people who bleed all the time. But really for us, the people who don't bleed are the ones that concern us far greater. Correct. um, Surveillance of the endometrium is now part of the ongoing care of polycystic ovary syndrome. It's not just making ovulation. It's making sure that long-term health of patients is in fact of women is in fact looked after. So what's acceptable? How often should we be comfortable with these women having menstruation episodes? It's a very good question. So one of the problems is that, of course, that women who have regular periods may in fact not be ovulating. So you may get a report from someone saying, I've actually got very regular periods, 
but in fact they're not ovulating. Now, a woman who, has, who gives a history of irregular periods will not always be ovulating, but women who say that they're ovulating regularly may in fact not be. And so for that reason, we actually need to check ovulation, particularly in that group. Because if they're not ovulating and they're still having cycles, they remain at risk of endometrial hyperplasia. How often do you need to shed the lining? We actually don't know. We think that at least once ever, if you're not on any hormonal treatment that stopped yep. you from getting periods, and that's the most important yes. thing. It's okay not to have periods yes. when you're on hormonal treatment. It's not okay not to have periods when you're not on hormonal treatment. But we think that probably three, maybe four times a year is adequate to at least have a shedding of the lining. Right. Um, and so are there any other clinical implications of polycystic ovarian syndrome? So we talked about um, about the weight, we talked about endometrial hyperplasia. What about the metabolic effects of yeah. PCOS? So there are long-term consequences to women with polycystic ovary syndrome, and they seem to be... Now, they exist both in the normal and thin population uh, as well as the overweight and obese population. In all of them, there appears to be an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So increased risk of diabetes, both during pregnancy and later on in life. The biggest risk factors for diabetes in women, of course, are pregnancy and age. And both of those increase with, uh, with, with time. Both the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, so that means abnormal uh, cholesterol profiles and abnormal sugars are things that can actually potentially affect your lifespan. So we need to control these right from the start. How often should we be doing cholesterol and glucose checks on women? So the, uh, the recommendation is currently that it should occur on diagnosis. And then we're talking about an individualized risk assessment, but it may have to occur, in fact, on a yearly basis. Do we know why some women get PCOS? PCOS is the end point of a whole lot of different conditions. So it's not just one particular disease. It's in fact a multitude of diseases, which is why we're looking at various different um, hormonal imbalances in this situation. So if you have someone who has an abnormality in the way that they process some of the sugars and some of the insulins because if they've got defects in the receptors, then they will develop a polycystic ovary type of syndrome. In the same way, a young woman who hasn't had ovulation for a long period of time, potentially because of exercise, potentially because of other psychological uh, problems that may have occurred in life, will often develop a polycystic ovary type of uh, syndrome presentation. Now we're trying to separate those out. So those women who've actually had abnormalities in the way that the brain talks to their ovaries specifically called hypothalamic amenorrhea, we're now trying to separate them out because we have to treat them very differently. But overall, polycystic ovary syndrome is in fact the end point of a whole lot of different inputs. Is there a genetic component to it? There are multiple genetic components to this. So we're working on uh, a number of different genetic markers have been identified. There are abnormalities in the FSH receptors. Some women have them in the LH receptors. They have abnormalities in the way they, they process male hormones. So there are different pathways. Not all of them we can elucidate. We know that there are a number of them, but not all of them you can diagnose. So the diagnosis specifically for that reason is not based on trying to find a genetic abnormality. Right. 
So let's talk about treatment and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll kind of nut it down into each of the individual mm-hmm. presentations. So if we have someone that has menstrual problems, either no bleeding or bleeding all the time, what would we generally look at to manage so those women? So in both situations, the most straightforward uh, and uh, the, the, the first treatment in all of these situations is lifestyle. Lifestyle correction goes number one, two and three. And so that addresses um, psychosocial issues, that addresses issues that may relate to weight, uh, whether there's an, an overweight or underweight, nutrition is very important. So that's number one. Lifestyle is the most important thing. Secondly, there's a correction of any underlying factors. So polycystic ovary syndrome is a diagnosis that's made in the exclusion of other abnormalities. So we want to make sure that there is not an underlying thyroid abnormality, there's not an underlying other hormonal abnormality. The third thing is it really then depends on what the goals of the woman are that you're seeing in front of you. If uh, she is young and she has irregular periods or no periods and the plan is not to fall pregnant, then probably the easiest and most straightforward treatment and the recommended treatment at the moment is a combined oral contraceptive pill. Now, on a combined oral contraceptive pill, she does not need to have uh, periods. She can use it continuously and avoid periods, but a combined uh, oral contraceptive pill is probably the most appropriate. In general, we try and use the lowest dose estrogen that you possibly can in this group, and there's certainly no documented harm in terms of upsetting any metabolic components from being on the pill in the long term. Yeah. Uh, the extended regimen, I find something really interesting because you st- I still get a lot of pushback from my local GPs when I recommend extended regimen. So that means for our listeners that you take the pill continuously and you skip the sugar tablets and people think that it's dangerous, that they'll get cancer, they'll get more thrombosis, that something bad will happen from them taking the pill continuously. You want to explain yeah, why no, that's you're absolutely, not you're correct. A, you're absolutely right, Rachel. Uh, as we said, the the not having periods on the pill is perfectly okay. The only reason for considering having a break is because the chances of having breakthrough bleeding increases logarithmically with the length that you've been on the pill. So most women can skip their periods for three months. After three months, the chances of breakthrough bleeding on the pill increase quite significantly. Now, some women can stay on the pill continuously without having any breakthrough bleeding. Some women need to change. The other component here is while while women don't develop resistance to a pill or a pill doesn't stop working, we often have to change the type of contraceptive preparation in a woman's lifespan, Mm -hmm. just simply because uh, lifestyle changes, her body makeup changes, hormones changes. So you often have a very low dose oral contraceptive pill that we use in the teens that then goes to a medium strength one later on in life. We may need to add more progestogens in later if there's there's a heavier bleeding component. And then uh, as a woman gets older again, we start dropping it back down again. So various contraceptive preparations for various situations. I still see Diane being the number one pill that's mm. used in the PCOS patient, um, which you know gets handed out by um, by mostly GPs without a particular need for the patient to be on that that type of pill. Correct. So Diane is a pill that lowers testosterone levels, but not all of the patients actually really need that. You're absolutely right. So most, in fact, all of the pills that contain estrogen will do correction of the uh, of the problems. So um, one of the 
um, uh, one of the uh, hormones that's induced by the pill, um, uh, one of the proteins that's induced by the pill, in fact, mops up testosterone, and that's mopped up by any, and that's increased by any estrogen-containing pill. So which pill you choose really just depends on the woman. And it's like buying shoes. You just got to find the pair that suits you at this time. And what about the progesterone-only methods? So progesterone-only methods we would use for contraception or for cycle control? Either. Okay. So for contraception, obviously, progesterone-only pills have a role, but they're not designed to shed the lining specifically. So in some women, we may get appropriate endometrial protection. In some women, we may not. And so it's not the recommended pill for endometrial protection. Progesterone cyclically, somewhere between 10 to 14 days every three months, is certainly appropriate to shed the pill, but that's no longer contraceptive. Right. Uh, long-acting progestins, so like Depo-Provera in particular, are appropriate for maintaining a thin lining and then protecting the endometrium. Implanon is appropriate in terms of uh, controlling, um, uh, in terms of contraception, its menstrual control is a little bit more variable depending on the pickup on the woman. And in particular, as uh, women with polycystic ovary syndrome, if you have someone who's larger in the overweight or obese category, implanon becomes more and more of an issue. And Mirena? A Mirena is obviously a wonderful way of controlling periods, particularly in those women who can't take the oral contraceptive pill. It's excellent endometrial protection. One of the problems is in women who've not had children before, in up to 12% will see a problem with the Mirena and that it can cause pain and discomfort. Obviously, Mirena does not control the other hormonal issues. So it's not good at controlling uh, the male hormone uh, components and it doesn't uh, alter your estrogen to male hormone ratio. But in terms of contraception, in terms of protecting the lining, it's wonderful. So let's talk about metformin because, again, it's another very commonly used medication for patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So for women who uh, do not want to take the pill, metformin still has a role, but it's not as effective as taking a continuous combined oral contraceptive pill. So um, it has a role, but not as big as we used to. It certainly plays a role in terms of preventing long-term risks. So from the diabetes prevention study, we know that the best way to prevent someone getting type 2 diabetes in the long term is to, in fact, control lifestyle. But if lifestyle control is actually very, very difficult, particularly in this patient group. There are many, many changes required in order to bring down weight and to alter the hormonal imbalances. So metformin does have a role in long-term preventing um, uh, type 2 diabetes, and it may make the cycle more regular. It is associated with a mild weight loss. So we're talking about a one to two kilogram weight loss, not a 10 kilogram weight loss. And it also is important in terms of assisting some of the other treatments that we're using in terms of fertility, because it's a sensitizer to some of the other medications that we use, so it makes it more likely that some of our ovulation induction medications will work. Is there a role for metformin and the pill together or metformin and Mirena together? Yeah, look, I I, I think that's a very reasonable uh, suggestion, particularly if you have someone who's been shown to have insulin resistance already. So if you have 
known problems, um, then my then uh, uh, metformin is a good choice. Of course, the problem with metformin is it has lots of side effects, okay. has lots and lots of gastrointestinal side effects. The extended release and the slow release preparations are potentially a little bit better, but it's in general not a pleasant medication to use yes. that very few women would use in the long term. So your um, 19-year-old who's been started on the pill is unlikely to stay on metformin for the next 30 years of her life. Are there any other medications that they could use for acne or hair growth? Yes. So we have a number of uh, anti-androgens that can be used, so anti-male hormone preparations. All of them require good contraception still to be in place. Um, there are a, a number of them. Um, spironolactone is one of the older ones. We've already talked about cyproterone, which can be used on itself because it has both a, a progestogenic activity. And there are a number of other preparations, but they're probably the most appropriate ones for people to use if you're going to use anything. So that's spironolactone and cyproterone acetate. And so let's go on and talking about the patient who wants to get pregnant. Mm. So she's got polycystic ovaries, or sorry, polycystic oh, ovary syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, thank you very and, much. And um, she's not having any periods at all, and she comes to you and says, Anusha, I want to fall pregnant. Okay. So again, the first thing to do is to perform a full assessment, make sure uh, that we've got all of the other factors covered, certainly in our patient uh, group. You often need a, another partner there as well. So there would be a male assessment if they're trying to fall pregnant in a heterosexual relationship. Um, we want to make sure that their baseline investigations are normal and the current recommendation is to consider a glucose tolerance test now before women fall pregnant. Um, we do all the antenatal screening, make sure that all of their metabolic um, uh, function is normal institute the lifestyle changes, commence folic acid, and then it boils down to what the woman wants to do. Very few women with polycystic ovary syndrome need IVF. In fact, most women will we will be able to manage medically. If we have an overweight or an obese patient, then losing somewhere along 5 to 10% will often get them ovulating and in fact allowing them to fall pregnant naturally. The next step after that then is to use an aromatase inhibitor and aromatase inhibitors like letrozole in Australia are not indicated for this use, so it's an off-label use, but they're now the first line recommendation from the international body. Um, very successful in terms of uh, inducing ovulation. Over 80% of women will ovulate with this. Not 80% will fall pregnant, but 80% will ovulate with this regimen. The next line then would include clomiphene or clomid, which is in Australia still the only indicated drug for oral uh, ovulation induction in women with polycystic ovary syndrome or an ovulation. And that can be combined with metformin, particularly in the larger patient. Um, and then after that, should women fail that first line, then we have a whole variety of other um, uh, treatments that can be done still. So we can then look at doing ovarian drilling, which is a surgical intervention, which normalizes the hormones and allows women to fall pregnant. That's just as effective as using uh, FSH injections uh, to fall pregnant. FSH injections have the potential for higher multiple pregnancies, so twins and triplets, so we want to be a little bit careful with that. And of course, the last option is IVF, but very few women actually need IVF. 
Would you, in your experience, would you see the more overweight patient being easier to manage from a fertility point of view or the very underweight, very skinny yeah, patients? So the, uh, in fact, they're both challenging on, on either on either end. Um, the problems that we see in both weight ranges are, in fact, exactly the same. Getting someone to lose weight is very challenging for lots and lots of different reasons. This is not laziness. This is not uh, purely bad eating. There are lots and lots of reasons. And, you know, metabolic requirements drop massively in in an overweight and an obese woman. So, in fact, it becomes impossible for her to eat little enough in order to Mm. lose weight. And we have exactly the same challenges on the other side. Making someone who is comfortable with their body image and their body weight and their level of exercise to put on five kilos is really very, very difficult and not always appropriate. Mm. I think in both situations, you have to set appropriate expectations and appropriate goals and we review them and we work together with a woman to achieve the best outcome for her and for her child. We see a lot of people in my region going through the weight loss surgery program, mm. so gastric sleeves or gastric bandings largely been superseded now by gastric sleeves, sleeves. or bypasses. Um, and that's a huge undertaking for those women, although potentially very successful. <laughs> It's a very large undertaking for for women, particularly if you're wanting to fall pregnant. There are massive changes that occur after that type of surgery, very large nutritional changes, often massive weight loss. And for that reason, we, in fact, not recommend that women fall pregnant for at least six months. But in fact, some studies have suggested up to two years after the surgery before you consider pregnancy because the outcomes are at least initially, poor. Of course, the long-term effects, the long-term benefits of maintaining a more normal weight range are yet to be seen because we don't have that long-term data. But we think that by the correction of all of those metabolic risk factors, at least, that those women will do much better in the long term. So as an obstetrician, it's a very interesting group of women Mm -hmm. to manage. We've had, you know, a number of them who um, we've had concerns about fetal growth and even nutritionally years down the line, they're still not taking in what a normal person would take in. It's very restrictive. It's a massive lifestyle change for for someone. You know, people have sometimes talked about bariatric surgery being the easy way out. It's absolutely not. It's a very, very large commitment. So can we, do you think we'll ever be in a position where we can cure polycystic ovarian syndrome? Ah, I think there are some types of polycystic ovary syndrome that we may have a cure for. So we will find specific endpoints in some of the hormonal pathways that we're looking at. So particularly in the low weight group, there are probably some treatments just around the corner that actually alter the way that the brain and the ovaries interact and that are likely to uh, to control that. And so that's probably in the next five years, we will see that. In the overweight group and in the obese group, again, it depends on exactly what pathway they've taken to get to PCOS. But we've got a lot of um, we've got a number of very promising drugs around the corner that in fact address satiety, that address the metabolic changes. And so I'm very hopeful that all of those people who are currently suffering with PCOS will have much simpler treatments available for them in the near future. 
And so the last group of women is what happens when you go through menopause? Does PCOS just go away? Yes, well, yeah, once PCOS, always PCOS. That still remains the story. So some of those, to a certain extent, the ovaries are only the innocent bystanders in this because of the metabolic derangement that actually exists. But menstrual disturbances disappear. Um, as the ovaries run out of eggs, you don't have the risk of endometrial hyperplasia anymore in the same way. But you still remain at risk of diabetes. You still, if you're obese, remain at risk of those endometrial changes. So it's very important to make those lifestyle changes very early on in life and really before the age of 30 to minimise your risks even later on in life. Much by the same ilk, removing your ovaries, um, so surgically having your ovaries removed will not cure no, PCOS. No, will not cure PCOS. And, you know, I, I think with that also goes that misnomer that those polycystic ovaries are, in fact, the cause of pain. They're not a cause yes. of pain. Yes. They're tiny little follicles that exist normally, and PCOS is not a cause of ovarian cysts, and that's really the big problem. You know, people get confused they with do. that wording. I, I think it's the title, polycystic ovaries. Yeah. It know, just sounds not, painful. It does. It does. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I thank hope you, um, our listeners will get some really useful information out of our podcast today. Um, I'll be shortly travelling to Perth at our annual scientific meeting. We plan to do lots of uh, podcasting with some of our international uh, faculty as well as some of our other board members. So we look forward to checking in with our listeners again soon. 